Support for Another Round comes from August, a new kind of consulting company that helps organizations realize their potential to make a meaningful dent in the world. Interested in doing this work? Drop them a line today at www.og.co slash another round. That's aug.co slash another round. Hi, everyone. I'm Heaven. I'm Tracy. And welcome to Another Round with Heaven and Tracy. Yay! Very excited. <laughs> <laughs> What are we excited about, Trace? Well, we are excited because today sees the return of Tracy's Jump Time. And the crowd goes crazy. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, I have seen your threats and demands on Twitter. I have heard you. So we're coming back with another joke. Also, we're going to be talking to a really, really interesting woman who's an activist in Bahrain. Uh-huh. Her name is Miriam Al-Hawaja. Uh, honestly, I can't even think about the things she thinks about every day. Yeah, she's a human rights activist, and part of me doesn't know what that means exactly, and the other part of me knows that it's really, really dangerous. Mm. She's got an amazing story, though. I'm excited to talk to her. Word, let's get to it. But before we get into it, we have a little announcement. So our live show on April 14th at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor may be sold out, but there will still be space available the night of the show. So we encourage everyone to show up early. Doors open at 630. You should get there at like 625 just to be sure. That's not early. (laughs) What is five minutes going to do for you? (laughs) Anyways, come early, guys. You know what? I don't know why I said that. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. That's why you're always late to things, Tracy. <laughs> Perpetually late. For more information, check us out on Twitter. That's twitter.com slash another round. We've been getting a lot of angry tweets once again because there hasn't been a joke in a while. So guess what I'm about to do? Tracy's junk time. Telling jokes in the studio. Hey. Hopefully it's good. Probably won't be. (laughs) All right. Okay. (laughs) Setting expectations. (laughs) Please lower them all. Okay. Here's a joke. You ready? I'm ready. (laughs) Oh, my God. So it's late one night, right? Mm -hmm. There's a man. We'll call him Jerome because why not? He's driving down the road and he's speeding because it's late. He's just driving. He just likes to drive fast. So he's speeding down this road at night. Cop sees him. Officer Bob, right? Bob throws on his sirens. He pulls, I'm sorry. He pulls Jerome over and he he gives him the line, excuse me, sir. You know why I pulled you over? Guy's like, nope, can't imagine. And then he's like, do you know how fast you were going? And he says, yeah, I was going about 95, 80, but. Oh my God. <laughs> but he's like, but I have a good reason. I just robbed a bank and I've got to get out. I had to get away before the cops came. And the cop is like, are you, did you just admit to a robbery? And he's like, yeah, I got the, uh. I got the loot in the back seat. And he's like, what? Are you kidding me right now? He was like, okay, you got me. It's not in the back seat. It's actually in the trunk. <laughs> and then the guy's <laughs> like, sir, I'm going to need you to um, pop the trunk for me. And also, I'm going to need your license and registration. He was like, okay, just want to let you know I have a loaded gun in both the trunk and in my glove compartment. Is Jerome black? <laughs> <laughs> what? Why Jerome get to be black? Because he got guns in the trunk. No. And in the glove box. his name is Jerome. <laughs> fair. That is a fair question to ask. He's mixed. <laughs> you just made that up. I did. I really did. I'm just worried about Jerome. <laughs> <laughs> so at this time, Officer Bob is like, I do not believe what just happened. This man just committed an armed robbery, which is a felon. 
which is a felony. They're on this empty street at night by himself. He's starting to get scared. So he's like, okay, sir, you're going to have to come with me. But first, I want you to stay in your car. I need to call for backup. Officer Bob gets on the radio, right? He calls for backup. There's a SWAT team. There's like a, um, what do you call the little whirly thing in the sky? Helicopter with a searchlight. <laughs> <laughs> and like they surround the car. They got guns pointed at him and why, all this stuff. Why do they need the helicopter? We know where he is. You know how, cap- <laughs> you know how cops be. They just so extra. <laughs> they be doing the most. They just like to make a scene. And so they've got him surrounded, right? And then they start to ease Jerome out of the car. And they pull him over to like the side of the road and they sit him down. And they're like, okay, sir, stay here while we search your car. Mm-hmm. They go and they search the car. <laughs> They search the car. They look in the glove box. There's no gun in the glove box. <laughs> they look in the back seat. There's no stolen money, no stolen goods. Where is this going? They look in the trunk. The trunk is empty. He's got like a spare and like a crowbar. And okay. that's it. And so another cop walks up to Jerome and they're like, sir, you, we were told that you just robbed like a bank or something. You've got guns. But we, we didn't find any of the stuff in there. And the man says, yeah. And I bet that fucking lying ass cop said I was speeding too. <laughs> <laughs> Yo. Ba-dum-bum. That's so nice. I'm about you know to do that. that. I'm not about to do no. that. <laughs> um, so Jerome in this case is not black because he made it out of the situation alive. Depressing mm. love. Yeah. That's a way to bring down the joke. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the fact that he's so bold to even do that. Right. I mean, he has to be white. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. White guy named Jerome. Look at, look at right, Obama's America. first white Jerome. <laughs> <laughs> look at Obama's America. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, go pay some bills, etc., get some refills. And when we come back, you're going to hear from Mariam Al-Hawaja, who is an incredible human rights activist. Support for Another Round comes from August, a new kind of consulting company that's starting a revolution in the way organizations work, from helping leaders embrace change to creating a culture where teams can thrive. Which brings us to our first and probably last installment of Master Workplace Theater. Tracy and I... We'll take a real-life workplace situation and transform it into a super dramatic, <laughs> unnecessarily dramatic radio play. Dun, dun, dun. This week on Master Workplace Theater, we find Tracy in a small meeting with her team members. Her coworker Stanley stands up and presents an idea. And that's why I think all environmental statistics going forward should sync up with Marsha's team before going live. Damn it, Stanley, that's the best idea I think I've ever heard in my 76 years at this company. Thanks, boss. Wait, 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 Stanley, you know good and well that was my idea. I don't know what you're talking about, Tracy. Damn it, Stanley, yes you do. And listen, if y'all don't start telling the truth around here, there are more tables to flip where this one came from, buddy. Stanley, is this true? Did you steal this idea from Tracy? Maybe I did. Maybe I'm bad. Real bad. Maybe I'm unhinged. Maybe I... Maybe I just don't care anymore. Maybe I... Oh, God. Security! Wait, wait. No, 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 wait. What is it, Tracy? (sighs) Stanley, I'm flattered that you liked my idea enough to steal it, but we should make a point to keep communication open across the team, okay? Now, let's shake hands and forget this ever happened. Sure thing. Put it there, partner. Tune in next time to see what happens after thousands of volts of nuclear energy travel from Stanley, the evil robot, into Tracy's body here on Master Workplace Theater. Thank you for listening.
If you're passionate about revolutionizing the way companies operate and you love to geek out about things like the future of work and what makes teams awesome, get in touch with August, a consulting firm for the 21st century. Learn more at aug.co slash another round. That's A-U-G dot C-O slash another round. So we are very excited to have Maryam Al-Hawaja in the studio right now. She's a human rights activist, the co-director of the Gulf Center for Human Rights. She currently lives in Denmark and is also a Bahraini citizen who played uh, an instrumental role in the protest taking place in Bahrain in February of 2011. It was probably one of the smaller Arab Spring countries that people didn't pay attention to. But those protests triggered a government response of widespread extrajudicial killings, arrests, torture, and more to suppress voices for reform. So it's definitely something we should be paying attention to. And despite being in exile, she's emerged as a, as a leading voice for human rights and political reform in Bahrain and the Gulf region. Welcome to the show. Thank you. You're known all over the world as this incredible activist. But we want to start with baby Miriam. <laughs> what were you like as a kid? Um, I was um, very stubborn, very <laughs> hard-headed. I gave my sisters a very difficult time. Uh, my older sisters, one of whom is currently in prison, actually were responsible for taking us to school. Mm. Uh, I always made sure we were late. Um, <laughs> I would find any fence on the way to school and grab onto it and refuse to let go. Um, I, I guess it was a way, because I was very small in size, I felt like I had to make up for it in personality. Mm. <laughs> so that was pretty much what I did. Where did you grow up? In Copenhagen until I was 14, and then we moved to Bahrain in 2001. Denmark is pretty white, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we grew up in Halta, which is right outside of Copenhagen, mm. and we were the only brown family mm. in the entire town. What Oof. was that like? Uh, I mean, traumatic. <laughs> um, um, I mean, I was told pretty much every day to go back to where I come from. I mean, even as a child, that's something we heard over and over again. Um, I watched my mother not being allowed to get on the bus sometimes. Mm. Um, if we walk into a store, we'd get followed around as if they know that we were going to steal something. So things like that, pretty much. Were you very aware of not being white? Like as a kid? Definitely. I mean, we, we grew up in a small Bahraini society, if I can put it that way. We were 21 Bahraini families in Copenhagen. And we Jeez. met every Saturday. <laughs> oh! Wow. Yeah, it was a nightmare. But now that I think <laughs> about it, you know, I think that it was actually a good thing. Um, mm. Because we held on to our identity. Um, and I think that one of the reasons that I actually decided to wear the headscarf was because I felt like it was... Um, me standing up to the Danish society, me right. saying that you, I know that you don't want me to wear this, so I'm going to wear it just because I can. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was the the headscarf was more of a statement than anything else. It also helped me to learn about myself. I mean, wearing the headscarf forced put me in a situation where I was forced to explain where I was from and who I was constantly. Right. Uh, because people always ask me, well, why do you wear a scarf? And why do you dress that way? And I'd have to actually be able to present a valid argument. Mm. And so that actually helped me growing up to learn about myself, about my culture, about my religion, where I came from, why we did things. Now, when I went back to Bahrain, I realized that it was a whole different issue um, and definitely not what I had grown up to believe it was mm. what was that like one of the things that i realized after we moved back to bahrain is that muslims on the outside of the muslim countries are actually a lot more islamic than people inside the muslim countries hmm. what does that um, mean 
So what it means is that because you're, like I explained, because you grow up in societies where you are forced to explain yourself over and over again and to understand why you do the things the way you do them, it also teaches you about religion. And so you actually read, you actually go and find out why you do things the way you do because you have to explain it. Mm. But when I when we moved back to Bahrain, I realized that that wasn't the case over there. I mean, yes, there were people who understood, but generally people did things because they grew up thinking that they're supposed to do it because yeah. it was part of society. I I remember one of like my most vivid memories of one of the first things that happened when I started interacting with Bahrainis in Bahrain was they were shocked that I prayed and that I wore the headscarf and that I didn't have a million boyfriends in Denmark. Mm. Um, and so this like this entire scenario for me was I was very struck by it. Um, and I didn't really know how to deal with it either. Mm. Did you like living in Bahrain? Um, no, I was one of those teenagers who was always very angry. Um, <laughs> I, I always, Same. you know, I loved, I loved listening to Tupac, Me Against the World. Yes. Um, <laughs> and so, and I always felt like it had been um, a huge or a really bad decision to go to Bahrain from Denmark. Uh, as much as I hated Denmark growing up, when I moved to Bahrain, I felt like I didn't belong there either. Because we grew up, I mean, in, in the society, that, the community that we grew up in in Denmark, we were taught that Bahrain was home. That's where we belong. That's where when we go there, that's our people. That's where you feel like you're now at home. Mm -hmm. So going to Bahrain and finding out that I didn't belong there either was a huge shock for me. Right. Um, and going to high school and being called the Dane by all the other Bahraini students mm. was also a huge shock wow. for me. So where do you consider home? Like where is home for you? I'm not sure. I mean... I guess the melodramatic thing to say would be the airport, since I travel so much. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'm not going to say that. I'm not sure. I think that uh, the one place where I've actually been, and this, I'm not just saying this because we're doing this show in New York, but <laughs> actually the only place I've been where I actually felt like people didn't look at me like I stood out mm -hmm. has, was Brooklyn. Mm. Um, it was the one place where I could walk around and feel like, well, everyone's different. This is a place where I could actually fit in. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, I don't think that I feel like anywhere really is home. Mm. So you have a very grown up job, like being a human rights activist is a very adult grown up thing. When you were little, before you knew what that was, before you knew what that meant, what did you want to be when you grew up? Both my parents are activists mm -hmm. um, and, I, and we grew up in an activist home. And, you know, one of the things that our parents would tell us before we went to sleep is you need to ask yourself a question every night, which is what have I done today that makes this world a better place? And if you can't name one thing, then you've wasted a day. That's heavy for a six-year-old. <laughs> And so this is something, I mean, that we grew up with and we constantly heard about the struggle. We constantly heard about the cause. My uncle was a political prisoner for about seven years in Bahrain. He was severely tortured. And so we grew up hearing all of these stories about the atrocities that were being committed in Bahrain. And so I think that it was always a part of us. And when we moved back to Bahrain, my father was in and out of prison. I watched him getting beaten up by riot police several times. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it was always part of the family it was it was something that we lived with and it wasn't much of a choice mm. that being said um i grew very disenchanted with the human rights work to be honest um during from 2001 to 2011 i watched my father getting beaten up i watched him you know trying to organize um and trying to build a grassroots human rights movement and i saw how they would be about 12 to 20 people going out to protest and getting beaten up and thrown in prison and nobody cared. I mean, when I mm. talk about it with anyone in Bahrain, they say, yeah, but your father's a troublemaker. Mm. And so I used to go up to my father and say, I don't understand why you're doing this. Like, what's the point? You can't change things for people if they don't want it to change. You can't force people to want human rights or democracy. Mm. And he used to always smile and say, one day you'll understand. And mm. 
It was only in 2011 when I was there for the uprising and I watched people getting shot and killed and I documented those cases. That's when I had a newfound respect for the Bahraini people because I suddenly understood what it meant to go through an experience like that, like people had in the 1990s during the last uprising. And so suddenly I understood why people had become so apolitical in that sense, that they didn't want things to go back to the 1990s. So for people who may not know about the Bahraini government or monarchy or anything, can you give us a little bit of background about what it was like before 2011 and then what it was like during the so-called Arab Spring? So Bahrain is an absolute monarchy, which means that the king and the ruling family is above the constitution. It means that they can do whatever they want and there's no accountability. There's a lot of corruption. Uh, they're in complete control politically and economically. And so Bahrain, which is an oil-rich country, has poverty and has un- high rates of unemployment. Mm. And so the, when people went took to the streets in 2011, the main demands was a constitution that was agreed upon by the people and the monarchy um, and that they would have a basic fun- and fundamental civil and political rights. Oh, so yeah. this was the main demand of the protest in 2011. Now, after people started getting killed on the streets for making those demands, it shifted to, well, the monarchy needs to step down. Got it. Can you describe what it was like then? Because I feel like the Arab Spring happened and I kind of, I saw the emotional swell, but I felt very disconnected from it. Also for listeners who may not know, what is Arab Spring? So the Arab Spring, I don't really like the term Arab Spring, but um, so the Arab Spring is the uh, the uprisings that happened in the Middle East and North Africa, demanding uh, political change and fundamental human rights. Um, it started in Tunisia when, uh, when Bouazizi set himself on fire after having been slapped by a police officer. He was a vendor selling things on the streets and he got slapped. And because of that, he said, himself on fire he basically reached a point where he just couldn't take it anymore Mm -hmm. this is one one of the things that we continuously go back to is that these revolutions were about dignity Mm -hmm. it was about people who were living for such a long time Mm -hmm. in situations where their dignity was stripped away from them and you don't understand what that means until you've actually tried it until you're in a situation where you know that a police officer can come up to you Mm -hmm. slap you beat you push you around say whatever they want Mm -hmm. and you can do absolutely nothing about it Mm -hmm. and and this is what then caused the uprising in Tunisia, which led to um, uh, the uh, president fleeing the country. And then, of course, ignited the uprising, the revolution in Egypt. And then Bahrain was actually the third, and then Yemen, and then Syria. So I grew up in Ethiopia. Well, I was born in Ethiopia, and I moved to America. It's very hard to describe to people what it's like growing up under a government where phrases like, the walls have ears, oh. is uh, incredibly important to learn very young. What was your relationship like to even discussing politics? Because of the way my father is and because of the way my mother raised us, I wasn't really used to having much of a filter, (laughs) Um, which is definitely something that you need to learn to have. I mean, during the last uh, trip that I made to Bahrain when I got arrested, um, I remember just having to teach myself or reteach myself to remember what I can and cannot say, especially while I was in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did make a couple of mistakes that I could have paid a huge price for. Um, okay, so let's get into that. Yeah, <laughs> so many questions okay, about prison. Give us your, your short timeline of what happened during the Bahraini Revolution and your involvement in your family's involvement. 
So in 2011, I was actually living in London in exile. I was under threat of arrest, so I had to leave the country. Um, what? What? Okay, explain all of that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the actual crackdown started in 2010. It was okay. the August, uh, August 13th. There were a few people coming back from London who were political activists and who had gone there to speak about torture at the House of Lords. And they got arrested upon arrival. Now, um, I had just come back from the U.S., actually. I was teaching at Prov- in Brown University in Providence. And I couldn't get a job because of my last name, because of my dad's work. Mm. Um, we're in Bahrain. If uh, one person is a human rights defender, the entire family pays the price. Right. And so because I couldn't get a job, I started volunteering for the Bahrain Center for Human Rights, given that the crackdown had started and people were getting arrested. And because of that, I became under threat of arrest. And so in September 2010, I had to leave. I get, they, were, they told me I had to leave the country within 24 hours and not tell anyone that I was leaving because I could have gotten arrested. Mm. Um, so basically, I packed a bag and left the country, and I didn't know if I could go back. But in January 2011, once, the, once Tunisia and Egypt happened, we were like, this is our turn. You know, like, this is the time for Bahrain as well. I just, I just don't understand how you find the strength and the energy. So I'm not going to lie. There were times that were pretty difficult. Um, the most, So the reason why I went back to Bahrain was because my father was on hunger strike. Uh-huh. I was in Denmark at that time, and I met with a hunger strike expert. My father had been on several hunger strikes before, one of which nearly cost him his life when he went on hunger strike for 110 days. And the hunger strike expert basically told me, every day that your dad is alive is a day we didn't know we had. Mm. And he's basically at a risk of going into cardiac arrest or basically going to sleep and not waking up again at any time. That's so scary. And because he'd been on several hunger strikes, I was not able to get media attention to his case. I mean, the first hunger strike got a lot of media attention. There was huge diplomatic international response. But because he'd been on several hunger strikes, suddenly mm. nobody was really interested in the story anymore. Mm. What do you feel like is the the power or the philosophy behind the, the hunger strike? I feel like it's a very specific tool it is it's an it's the, the idea is that you are stripped of basically every tool that you had as a human rights activist all those things all those tools that you usually have are taken away from you mm. so you use the last tool that you do have and that's your own body and it does make a difference because at the end of the day especially for someone like my father who is seen as a as a leader in the community uh, for him to die in prison would have been a huge problem for the government mm. and that's why they ended up force feeding him after the 110 day hunger strike and keeping him alive because they wanted to make sure he didn't die mm. and so that's why I decided to go back to Bahrain I knew that if I went back to Bahrain whether I was allowed in to go see my father and then left or whether I was arrested either way that would get media attention you know the Mm -hmm. daughter who's going back to see her father in prison Um, and so I left within 24 hours of that meeting with the hunger strike expert and I was arrested upon arrival in the airport Uh, they were waiting for me right outside the airplane door um, I pretended not to see them and walked right back, right by, and they were like, Miriam, and I continued walking. They were like, Al-Khawaja, and then I turned around and I was like, yes. <laughs> um, and they're like, you rang. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all I know of prison so far, not going to Have you it. been? <laughs> not yet. There's still time, though. There's time left. Um, but I mean, everything that I know of prison, first of all, is like American prisons, and secondly, it's from like shows made for entertainment. So like Oz and Orange is the New Black, what is it really like? And also, what, did you ever laugh in prison? Like, were there ever, like, funny moments where... Did you ever feel, like, light enough to be like, ha-ha, this is something happening and I can, like, have a funny response to oh, it? Oh, definitely. 
I mean, yeah. I treated prison like I was in a basketball training camp. I <laughs> walked around. Yeah. What? <laughs> I would walk around singing in the hallways. Um, you know, I made a, friends with pretty much everyone who was in the prison. Even the guards who were respectful and nice, I was very nice to them. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, the day that I got released, one of the prison guards came up to me and she's like, you know, some of the inmates are crying. Like, this Aww. is ridiculous. <laughs> um, so I, <laughs> but like the whole point of, you know, going to prison when you do what we do is you, you one of the things you understand is that living and laughing and being able to take on prison with that attitude is part of the struggle mm. when you go in there and you're not able to laugh and you're not able to sing and you're not able to have that kind of strong attitude you've already lost it sends a message that you can put us in prison but it's not going to break us it's right. part of our struggle so you seem very uh disciplined and specific about your activism and I, I was watching the documentary We Are Giant, which listeners can watch on Netflix if they're curious. Um, and your father and your sister were talking about how they both read Roots in Prison by Alex Haley mm-hmm. and how much they thought about like the African-American tradition of protest. They talked about how the civil rights movement was a, a thing they often looked to. What are your models of protest? I read Roots when I was 12 years old. Um, And it's one of the stories that stuck. Um, And we've seen, I mean, just about every movie there is about the African-American struggle uh, Mm. with my parents. I mean, when Amistad came out, my parents, you know, got tickets and we went to the cinema and we watched it. And one of the things about my parents is that when we watched movies like that, it wasn't just about, you know, us going and watching the movie. We would actually have a conversation about it afterwards. Mm. And they would always, you know, encourage us to go and find books and read about it to learn more. And so this the the struggle for civil rights in the United States, but also other struggles have been very instrumental in the way that we do our work as well. Like what else? I mean, so there's the South African struggle, of course. Um, And one of the things that I think is very powerful about the South African struggle is that in a way, from an international perspective, it's similar to Bahrain because Bahrain also is a country where because they're, you know, allies with Saudi Arabia and they're allies with the United Kingdom and the United States, it means there's just no international accountability for human rights crimes. Mm. Um, And so South, South Africa was the same way. And it took a, you know, a struggle from the inside, but also from the outside Mm. for apartheid to stop. In the documentary, there's footage of you confronting Hillary Clinton. It's amazing to watch. It looks like, I don't even know what it was. It was some fancy gala situation. (laughs) Yeah. And it it doesn't show what happens after you start talking to her. What happened? So it was the U.S. Islamic World Forum. Okay. Um, You know, the younger brown people were placed all the way in the back of the room. And so there was actually quite a distance (laughs) for me to go to get to Hillary Clinton at that point. Yeah. To begin with, I was sitting there and thinking my father at that point and my two brothers-in-law and my uncle were all subjected to enforced disappearance. Um, So this is in 2011. This was in 2011. We weren't even sure that my father was alive. Mm -hmm. Um, The situation was really bad. And because he was taken away unconscious, they had beat him in front of my family until he was unconscious and then took him away. And so I was sitting there and Hillary Clinton was right in front of me. And I was sitting there thinking, well, what can I do? Um, Mm. You know, like she's right there and I need to do something. And so in the beginning, I was thinking, well, maybe I should just get up and start shouting something while she's talking. And then I was Mm. like, no, that's not professional. I probably will never get another meeting in Mm. the U.S. if I do that. Uh, Plus, it won't look good for my activism in the future. So I decided against it. But then after she finished her speech and she was coming off the stage, of course, people went up to her to say hello. Mm. And so I started, you know, running across the room towards her because we're all the way in the back and, you know, shouting, Mr. Secretary, Mr. Secretary. (laughs) What I didn't notice 
this is that there was actually Secret Service right behind me, and <laughs> I was who does brown girl? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I was actually very lucky that I reached Cl- Hillary Clinton before they reached me because mm. that would have been a whole other story. <laughs> um, so I got to her, and you know, I grabbed her hand to say hello, and she was going to pull back, but I grabbed her hand and I basically gave her a run through of Bahrain in like 1.5 minutes. It was mm. a great read. It was a fantastic <laughs> read. Already four people have died and their bodies have showed up with torture marks on them. And I think it's really necessary for the U.S. government to make a strong statement about what's going on in Bahrain because these are U.S. allies at the end of the day. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, And she just smiled and then she said, thank you for coming. And she walked away. And now since then, I've gotten uninvited from an event that she was at. What do you mean? So I was invited to to this event where she was going to be, and they were inviting women from the Middle East and across the world, act, mm. young women activists, to yeah. come meet with her. So right um, up your alley. Right. Exactly. Um, and I received an email. They were like, we'd love to invite you, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, of course, I'd love to come. And then I received another email saying, we decided to go a different route. What? Wow. Um, what a way to say you're <laughs> uninvited. Yeah. So, so how much time had elapsed from the confrontation to you being uninvited to this thing? The uninviting happened in 2014. I met her in 2011. Okay. Oh, so they're still they're still thinking they're about They're still it. salty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm a little worried about what that's going to mean for my activism in the U.S. if she gets elected president. Mm. I feel like most of my questions are about like feelings and emotions because I'm I describe myself twice a day just like one big walking emotion I'm an emotion with legs but like (laughs) how like how do you do it it's a very long struggle um, and I wouldn't even describe it as being uphill I'd say it's up mountain Mm -hmm. do you feel like the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice wow (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm not sure I would like to have hope in humanity I would like to believe that as human beings we tend to move more towards justice than injustice. But honestly, after five years of doing what I do, I'm not so sure about that anymore. I Mm. mean, I've met with diplomats who told me to my face that they don't care about human rights. They don't care about children getting shot and killed in Bahrain. Mm. I've met diplomats who I would sit there and and explain to them, describe to them the torture that people are being put through. The fact that we have children in prison in Bahrain with their mothers Mm -hmm. and who basically couldn't care less because it just doesn't feed into their economic interests. And one of the things that I learned early on in my job was that I needed to know my audience. Mm. And so when I meet people from the military, I don't go in there and try to appeal to their humanitarian side. Mm. No, I have to go in and present an argument of why human rights are important for their security interests. And so just having to put myself in that position Mm. of having to, you know, remove myself from those emotions of being part of the struggle of having my family in prison and having to sit there and be like, well, I know you don't care about human rights, but mm-hmm. you know, for your security interests, it actually is better if you have a st- if you have stability in mm-hmm. right, right. Oh man, <laughs> how do you keep moving when um, when you're disillusioned? My mother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, if I ever feel down or I feel like, you know, well, what's the point anymore? And I feel that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, all I need to do is talk to my mom and she's like, Maryam, like this is not about you. There's a struggle. There's a cause. This is much bigger than you. It's not about individuals. This is about an entire country, an entire region. And if you think you're tired, think about these families who mm-hmm. have had their children killed. Think about the people who are sitting in prison cells. You're mm-hmm. sitting in Europe. And so you have absolutely no excuse to be giving up hope. If these people can continue struggling you have no excuse to give up but it's also something that my father told me um 
before I left Bahrain, when before he got arrested, which was, if you want to be a human rights defender, you have to understand that you can't do it because you're expecting results. Mm. If you expect results, you're going to lose hope. You're not going to be able to continue. You become a human rights defender because it's the right thing to do. You're doing the right thing because you need to do the right thing, because the right thing needs to be done, because people's rights need to be fought for. Because imagine if everyone stopped doing that, even if it doesn't change things to the better. Mm. How much worse would it be if human rights defenders decided to no longer defend human rights? Yeah. Woo! But that's a lot. It's a lot. Like at the same time, you're human and humans get tired. Like when you were speaking, when my parents say, like, sorry. No, go ahead. Because I feel like we're going to say the same thing. (laughs) When my parents are like, children are starving in Africa. Yes, yes. Like, first of all, that was us. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes. (laughs) I literally know, mom. (laughs) But, uh, But yeah, like, there are times when I'm like, and I mean like my problems, and I know and I recognize are like this big compared to like the problems that you're fighting. I'm just like, oh, my internet's out. And well, it's relative. Go. It's all relative. It's true. But like um, when I have like friends who are going through it, like example, I had a friend who was like going through some stuff and she put a status on Facebook just venting and somebody responded and was like, well, it could always be worse. And I got so mad. Yeah. I got so upset because like that's not the point. She's allowed to get tired. She's allowed to be disillusioned. She's allowed to like sit down and like feel for herself for a moment Mm. do you allow yourself those moments do you ever get resentful at like the feeling or or at being told that you know like it could be so much worse i don't get resentful of being told that because i do also get told to take care of myself um i mean both my parents whenever they talk to me the first question they ask is when is the last time you went to the cinema Mm. when is the last time you went out to see friends are you you know going out having fun and so on Mm. and so that's something that's also very important to them and my father has told me time and time again that if you want to be able to do this long term you need to take care of yourself because Mm. you can't take care of others if you don't take care of yourself that being said uh, like I said as I was when I was a child I was very stubborn and hard headed (laughs) (laughs) and so I don't exactly listen to my parents (laughs) Um, and I think it's largely related to the issue of survivor's guilt Mm. Uh, that feeling of you know I survived when others did not and so taking time off um, you just feel so guilty that it's not even worth it it's not even worth taking time off because you feel so bad about yourself knowing that, well, in this moment, I could have written a statement. In this you know, hour that I took off, I could have done something to help someone. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, being in prison those three weeks was the only time that I didn't feel that way. It was mm. actually kind of like a mini vacation. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. I don't want to make it sound really positive, <laughs> but it was, in a sense, you know, it was the only time in these five years that I didn't really feel guilty anymore. Mm-hmm. So how do you take care of yourself? Do you take uh, care of yourself? <laughs> uh, I think the easy answer to that would be no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I work pretty much most of the time. I mean, I, yeah, I do go out with friends um, from time to time. I do hang out with friends. But usually, like, even when I'm out with friends, I'm on my phone. I'm checking emails. I'm right. tweeting. I'm, you know, following up. But it's also, it, it's very much related to the anxiety of something, of missing out on something. Mm-hmm. Because when my father was arrested, I found out from Twitter. Yeah. Um, and I was sitting on a train going from New York to Providence mm. when I found out. And just that feeling of being so far away, but also knowing that the only thing that links me to the situation there mm. is my phone. Mm-hmm. And so there is this anxiety related to not being on the internet and not having my phone around and not checking my phone. Mm-hmm. Because I know that any bad news is always going to come through that device. Right. And so I have to be constantly connected. I want to circle back really quickly to um, your fam. Mm-hmm. 
the documentary that you were in, We Are Giants, your sister Zainab was also there with you. And she's currently in prison, yes? And yeah. she is either pregnant or just, or has a new baby? Yeah, so um, she was arrested on the 14th of March with her 15-month-old son. Wow. I don't know why I would expect, like, uh, humanitarian concern <laughs> about <laughs> right. the prison system. <laughs> I mean, you would think that generally if you say, well, there's a 15-month-old baby in yeah. prison with his mother who's being held on freedom of expression and freedom of association charges mm -hmm. that people would care. But it actually doesn't doesn't work really that way. Yeah. So tell us about, like, what landed your sister in jail? So she has five cases against her. She's in total, I think, been charged with 13 or 15 cases. She's been imprisoned, I think, up to 10 or 11 times. I've lost track. 10 wow. or 11 times now. Um, she's been beaten. She's been shot in the leg. She's been, you know, pretty much everything. But my favorite story of Zainab was she was on trial for ripping a picture of the king, mm -hmm. which, of course, is a huge deal in Bahrain. Um, yeah. And you can get up to seven years in prison for uh, insulting the king. So ripping wow. a picture of him falls under that. And so she was on trial for ripping a picture of the king and she basically was in a position where she was boycotting the court, but she knew that if she didn't go to court, she would get arrested anyway. If you boycott the court, you get picked up from your home. So she decided to go to court, which was surprising to all of us. Now, of course, we all knew that there was something going on, but of course, Zainab doesn't really share with us what she plans on doing <laughs> because she's always worried that we're going to tell her not to do it. <laughs> and so I suddenly, my phone starts ringing and I'm like, what's going on? And it's the lawyer and he's like, yeah, so Zainab got up in court in front of the judge, who's also a member of the ruling family, gave him a speech about how she's a free woman born to free parents. She was eight months pregnant at that point. And how she told him how her son, when he is born, whether in a prison cell or not, will be a free baby boy as well. Mm. And then she took out a picture of the king, ripped it, and placed it in front of the judge. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's <laughs> like when Sinead O'Connor ripped the picture of the Pope on Saturday Night Live. Just like that. Just like but that. only a lot, <laughs> a lot more important. <laughs> my analysis is that she was arrested because of my work. They can't get to me, so they went after her. Um, wow. Her sentences are definitely related to her work. Uh, and to her activism and the one-person protest that she stages and so on. But I think that the timing of the arrest right now was definitely a message to me. I'm trying to imagine being in your shoes, which obviously I cannot because I'm a very spoiled American who lives inside our bubble. But, like, your sister and your nephew are in jail. Like, what? I just feel like I would feel so helpless at this point. Is there anything that you can do to, like, try to help get her out? Or do you just have to wait? Is it just a waiting game? I do feel helpless. Um, and that's one of the things that I discovered all early on in 2011 when my father was arrested was that the feeling of helplessness is even worse than the feeling of fear. And with Zainab and my nephew right now, knowing that they're sitting in a prison cell, knowing that they were given blankets that are stained and dirty, knowing that my nephew cannot even eat the prison food um, and they're not allowing um, my family to bring them baby food from the outside. You know, all of these things, because I've been in prison, I know what prison's like. So just imagining him in there, you know, a 15-month-old baby who's looking at the ants on the floor and thinking it's a game. Right. Um, that it, it definitely, it breaks my heart. So the way that I deal with it is, of course, we try to raise attention. So I've been spending the past couple of like since she got arrested, what I've been doing is working on statements, you know, contacting State Department, contacting the missions here in New York at the UN, you know, talking to the media, pretty much trying to do everything I can to raise pressure on her case, because that's how I got out of prison. Mm. I got out of prison because it became more costly for the Bahraini government to keep me in prison than to let me go. Mm -hmm. And that's what we need to do for 
for Zainab. We need to make it more costly for the Bahraini government to keep her in. I'm also currently thinking about going back to Bahrain. Um, and I'm sentenced to one year in prison in absentia, and I have five other pending cases, one of which is under the anti-terrorism law, which can carry a life sentence. Um, so I know that going back this time probably means I'm not going to get back out. Um, wow. But at the same time, if I feel like I've reached a point where there's nothing I can do on the outside anymore, that, you know, it's just not going to cut it. I won't be able to be, you know, in Europe or the U.S. and knowing that my sister and my nephew are in prison. So I'd rather go be in prison with them than be on the outside helpless. Um, and my hope is, is that if I do decide to go back, that me being in prison will actually get them released because it would be too much pressure on the government for them to have all of us in prison at the same time. And it would look better for them to release a woman and her baby than to release me. So my hope is that if I do decide to go back and I feel like working on the outside has become useless, that it will result in them being released from prison. For a dramatic change in tone, <laughs> a huge shift, a very sharp shift in tone. Now is our fun rapid fire segment, which you're already familiar with, so I don't have to explain the title. It's called Pew Pew Pew. Um, what is the last song that you sang? Uh, that's not my name. They call me. They call me Stacy. That's not my name. <laughs> it's also not my name. Not mine either. So there. Assuming that you have games on your phone. I, I sound do. like a little, a little kid. You got games on your phone. I play your games. That's what uh, all my cousins say to me. <laughs> only thing I'm good for. Everybody under 60, you got games on your phone. Um, what's your favorite game right now on your phone? Need for Speed. Ooh. Is it, is it a, I sound, I feel so old. Is that like a racing game? Yeah, game definitely. Game? And you like, you move your phone to move the car. So it's yeah. really cool. I um, used to play this farm game where you like buy stuff and you farm shit. But like, see, those are, that's my <laughs> Like, I'm really bad at the. Tracy likes games with resources. <laughs> I like resource collecting games. <laughs> the farm game is really cool. But then I saw all of the prison guards playing it. So it wasn't as much fun afterwards. Uh, <laughs> oh, damn, that <laughs> is a real downer. Killed your vibe. <laughs> <gasps> Tell us about the body scrub that you learned to make in prison. <laughs> I have to know the recipe. Um, okay, so in prison, there's very limited things that you're allowed to have. Mm -hmm. So there were a bunch of women in prison with me who were basically charged with prostitution. They were Moroccan. Um, and so they showed me how you can actually make body scrub and oil for your hair out of like the materials we did have in prison what so basically they would take sugar so in the prison because it was a temporary prison facility where you go before you're sentenced mm -hmm. um there was a kitchen um with very limited stuff but there was so they would take sugar and they would put it with water and honey mm -hmm. and then they would put it in the fridge and then they take it out of the fridge and they use it as scrub that is very similar to a scrub that I still make to this day. And yeah. it's like a really, really good scrub. There's just like added, nobody cares about this. But <laughs> it's two types of sugar. It's honey and coconut oil. And like if you want like a little scent or something like some essential oil. It's a good scrub. Good scrub recipe. <laughs> um, I heard you also got your hair done. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I heard there were some cornrows involved. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, so there were. I mean, uh, one of one of the women with us in prison. Like I said, I made friends with pretty much everyone in the prison. Um, and one of them was from Ethiopia, 
And so, hey girl, hey. <laughs> <laughs> and so she actually made you know turned my hair into cornrows, which was really cool. I mean, it was really sad because there were no mirrors in prison, oh, but I I, I felt like I was really cool. So <laughs> that's what matters. <laughs> I'm certain that you were. Certain. I love that. <laughs> um, what advice would you give Black Lives Matter protesters? I think that first of all, um, it's very important for different struggles to. Uh, reach without with outside of their borders um, and I think that that's something that we learned the hard way in the Middle East which is you know there is no struggle that is by itself mm-hmm. you need to be able to reach across the border and work together learn from each other share strategies because there's always going to be something that you didn't know about that you can learn from others and so I remember when the protest actually started in Ferguson I was one of the people that was tweeting advice about what to do with tear gas mm-hmm. um, and it actually got picked up that, by yeah. the New York Times uh, the tweets that I had written along with actually a fellow activist from Palestine who was also tweeting about it mm-hmm. um, and so we, we are very aware of the different struggles that happen and we try to give an input when we can um, and I would actually be very interested in meeting with the activists from Black Lives Matter I'm very like it's it's a movement that I admire and respect very much and I think it's something that's very important especially at this time um, and I think that they can definitely learn from our struggles and we can learn from theirs as well. And so that's something that I would definitely like love to see happen is for us to actually reach across borders and learn from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, your eyeliner is always on point. <laughs> Teach us. <laughs> Teach us your ways. What do, do you have you any use? tips? Um, my sister Zainab actually taught me how to <laughs> put an eyeliner. So, I mean. What kind do you use? Mac, I think. Mm-hmm. Wait, I, I don't remember. This is really bad. No, Chanel. That's Chanel. Okay. okay. Yeah. Is, right. it, <laughs> is it liquid? Is it a pencil? So it's liquid pencil. Oh, yeah. I'm listening. Fancy. <laughs> Hot tip. But you also have to make sure that the tip is um, very thin because if you use those thick ones, they always go wrong. Mm. But if it's thin, you can actually decide how thick you want to make it, like depending mm. on mm-hmm. how big your eyes are. See, I'm really, really bad with like really thin tip stuff. Yeah. This is I hard. Eyeliner is hard. <laughs> Revolutions are hard. Eyeliner is hard. <laughs> um, we hear that you hate your Wikipedia page. <laughs> I do. Why? Well, one, because um, it's pretty outdated. Mm. Two, because I don't know who made it, which is not the reason why I hate it, but like I don't that know. That does seem weird, though. Yeah, like someone just tweeted it at me one day, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. But the main reason why I hate it is because my friends... Um, every time we meet someone new, decide to pull up my Wikipedia page, <laughs> and that's how they introduce me to people. Nice. And I'm like, can you please not? Like, this doesn't need to be how I'm introduced to people. <laughs> so your friends are trolls, is what you're saying? Yes. So if tomorrow there was world peace and you no longer had to be a human rights activist, what would you do? I would retire. Mm. <laughs> I would like buy a little hut in the middle of nowhere with no internet connection. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, like, just live out my days there. I think I'd probably get bored after, like, two days and leave. But, you know, I'd like to think that I can, like, last there for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, But, I mean, generally, I think I really love training. Um, Before I got into human rights, I used to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. um, And I also used to train students on leadership skills. Um, And it was a lot of fun. It was something that I loved doing. Well, on that beautiful note (laughs) of this depressing conversation. (laughs) Yo, thank you so much for stopping by. My pleasure is all mine. Where can people find... Yes, facts. Uh, Where can people find your work? 
Uh, definitely on Twitter at Maryam Al Khawaja, M A R Y A M A L K H A W A J A. Very long name. I think that's pretty much it. I mean, you can always, if you Google my name, you'll get like tons of interviews and videos and stuff like that. And, you know. And a great Wikipedia page. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for stopping by. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. All right, Trace, who are you buying around for? I'm really excited for this. Ooh. Because I'm buying around for Al Sharpton. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, let me clarify. How sway and why sway? <laughs> you know, people have their their thoughts and opinions on Al Sharpton. You know, I know that he's a pretty controversial figure. Um, this is not what this round is about at all. Okay. I love Al Sharpton because he can't pronounce anything. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> so he had a show on MSNBC for a short time. He did. Where... I always found that show confusing. Why? he'd be like a protester in the protest they're covering and also covering the protest. Right, right. So he covered how did, him, himself Yeah, how was that not a conflict of interest? Yeah, that's a, that's a thing that people Anyways. feel a way about Al Sharpton about. But it was so fun to watch because on the show, he was definitely just like your uncle yelling at Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just like yelling about celebrities, pronouncing their names all wrong. He called Kim Kardashian, Kim Kardashian. <laughs> <laughs> god that's like the most said name ever how do you not know who kim kardashian is or how to say a name if you've never seen um any bits or pieces of al sharpton's show don't go watch actual clips of it go watch an snl parody (laughs) with keenan thompson as al sharpton it's exactly exactly like that also though what you should do there's a video on the internet called Al Sharpton versus the teleprompter. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just a supercut of his best moments pronouncing everything oh, wrong. No. He pr- he pronounces the G at the end of Rush Limbaugh's name every time he says it. And so obviously he talks about him a lot. So every time it's Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh. The show Rush Lombard hosts Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Yesterday, Antonine, Antonine Scalia, Kim Kardashian, and the Republican So my round is for Al Sharpton and the endless moments of internet laughter that he has brought into my life. I would like to buy a round for Pure Heroin, Lord's Album. Mm. I should have started that sentence differently. I thought you were uh, <laughs> confessing something to me. I thought this was a turn um, into an intervention. I really did not think that sentence through. <laughs> <laughs> I love Lord. She's so great. This is her album, her debut album from 2013. Mm-hmm. And I remember when she first came out, everyone was like, who is this like young girl from New Zealand of all places? She's like 12. She's so young. Yeah. Was young. Yeah. But she had this like incredible, powerful voice. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, who is she? Who is she? <laughs> and then she really blew up. And it made me so happy because I'm never on the first wave of a musician, first uh-huh. of all. <laughs> but you got to do the hipster. Ugh, I've been listening to her forever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know what it is about Lord, but she makes me feel my age. Mm-hmm. Like she lets me enjoy it. Whereas my mom has always like chastise me to like act my age i i feel like i've heard it all my life but i still don't really know what that means Uh uh-huh because i feel like what she's trying to say is like make more mistakes and don't take yourself so seriously break curfew sometimes i do that all the time oh i make so many mistakes (laughs) i don't take myself seriously at all (laughs) but something about lord's music really makes me like live in the moment 
But also, she's like the best celebrity. Like, this mm-hmm. is best case scenario for what a celebrity could be. Mm-hmm. She's like vocal when she wants to be. She's funny. She's witty. She claps back. Yes. She does not stand for anyone's bullshit. She also doesn't apologize for like who and what she is, which I love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She'll make fun of you. <laughs> I live for it. <laughs> There was this one time she like tweeted at Kim Kardashian, mom. <laughs> oh, and the internet went crazy. Yeah. And she was that. like, y'all are dumb. These <laughs> olds got me confused. <laughs> but anyways, I just really appreciate the energy she brings to the world. Mm-hmm. I saw her lipstick game is always on point. Also, also, I love that she does not look like a traditional pretty girl when she dances yeah lord gets like possessed by the music mm-hmm. and i fucking love it you know what it reminds me of do you remember <laughs> no i don't know if anybody will remember blue cantrell you remember blue yes cantrell? okay good 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 so blue cantrell makes some faces when she sings so does <laughs> um jennifer holiday who popularized mm. the song and i'm telling you blue cantrell was asked about it once and she was like I don't look pretty when I sing because singing is not a pretty like yeah. art. Like I'm belting like songs and feelings and emotions. So why am I going to be concerned with like looking cute for right. y'all? I'm trying right. to do this music. That's I'm what not- it reminds me of. Yeah. There's no delicacy to singing. It's a strength. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Lord. Yeah. Our Lord and Savior, Lord. Yo, that was an incredible conversation. It was a journey. We had jokes. We had despair and hope. <laughs> we want to give a big shout out to Mariam for coming through. Yes, yes. Shout out to the Pod Squad. Pod Squad. Brum, 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 brum. Brum. <laughs> you improve every week. Every Don't single lie week. to me. I would never. I would. You're right. Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Don't improve every week. This episode was produced by Eleanor Kagan with editorial oversight from Jenna Weiss Berman and production help from Julia Furlan and Meg Kramer. Big thanks to Paul Ruest at Argo Studios. Yay, Paul. Woo. Thank you to our um, Fancy Pants musician friends, Jean Gray. You can follow her on Twitter at Jean Greasy. And to Don Will of the Almighty Tanya Morgan, you can follow him on Twitter at Don Will. Thank you to heaven. Aww. I'm glad you exist. Shout out to Tracy at Brokey McPoverty. Oh, have we said our Twitter handles in a while? I feel like we haven't. Shout out to Brokey McPoverty, internet legend. Aww. Twitter and legend. <laughs> shout out to Heaven Rants on Twitter and Snapchat and all the things. If for some reason you haven't subscribed to the newsletter Oh yet, my God, what are you doing? It's so good. It's honestly great. To sign up for the newsletter, go to buzzfeed.com slash another round slash newsletter so you can get happiness and fun times and joy 
in your email inbox once a week. You're welcome. Also, be sure to check out BuzzFeed's other podcasts like The Tell Show and Internet Explorer. Hit us on the buzz on Twitter at Another Round on Facebook. We're also Another Round. Email is Another Round at BuzzFeed.com. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. If you don't like the show, maybe do a little introspection and figure out what's going on. What's going on there? Yeah, we were um, worried about you. Also, we're on Spotify. What? Did you even know they have podcasts on Spotify? No. It's a little bit in the cut. But <laughs> check it out. Yay, we coming up in the world. Woo-woo. Look at the come up. Drink some water. Take your meds. Call your mom. Oh, my God. Drink mm-hmm. some water. Take a walk. Like a really long walk. Into it. Let's take a walk. Let's go. Let's go take a walk. Let's go take a walk right now. Bet. Bye. Bye. I would like to buy a round for... Me. Yay. Always Tracy. Drink it in now. Listen. Tinkle, 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 tinkle. What? They would sound the ice. Tinkle, tinkle, tinkle. Tinkle, tinkle. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, my heart's...